Chapter number 28 of The Queen of Appalachia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Queen of Appalachia by Joe H. Borders. Chapter 28 Back to Earth Paul and His Creditors. Darn my buttons, Thornton, but you're a regular jack in the box. Where on earth has you been? Oh, up in the country, Uncle, enjoying the scenery and splendor of new worlds. I never thought you'd find him, sis, turning to Angelina. That was an easy undertaking, Uncle, replied May, with a wink at Angelina. No trouble at all, I assure you, spoke Angelina, taking the cue. What's you and's got in the Mars axe? Thornton? Some old rocks, I reckon. They always towed off a lot of them there. Relics, they call them. How's the canoe, Uncle? Right side up? Avoiding his question. Paul did not care to tell Uncle Bill that those burdensome sacks contained enough gold and other precious stones to buy half the United States. Riding like your duck, Thornton, but you and Zane been to Cone home? Yes, Uncle. We are going home, sure enough, this time. Did you and fish out them our jewels what were lost? asked he, eyeing May's jeweled fingers and her flashing diamonds. The lost were found, replied Paul, truthfully. My sister desires me to make you a present, Uncle. And, of course, you cannot well decline a gift from her. No, you can't, Uncle, said May, laying a package containing a small fortune in its hands. He made due acknowledgement, being profuse in his thanks, and placed the unopened packet in the clock on the crude mantelpiece. Paul and his two companions soon took leave of the good-hearted old mountaineer, and loading the old canoe with their wealth and baggage, were quickly drifting downstream. Angelina had stood the trip with remarkable endurance and courage, and was delighted over the beautiful mountains that loomed up before her in all their loveliness. She had a pleasant word and a gratifying smile for the many, to her, newfangled scenes that continually came into view and gave every indication of enjoyment. May was too happy to allow even the trials of that underground passage from Hell's Gate to Freedom to annoy her, and she endured the long, burdensome tramp without a murmur, emerging into the open sunlight with rosy cheeks glad some eyes and a happy heart. Paul was heavily encumbered by the millions of gold that was forced upon him by the generous queen. He was not adverse to wealth, he enjoyed it, but he didn't want the earth, and yet he finally accepted a sum that would purchase a very large slice of it. Notwithstanding his ponderous load, he was lively and gay. Angelina had never before seen the humorous side of his nature, and she was most agreeably surprised to find that such a sober character could be so full of sunshine and liveliness. His jovial, enlivening spirit played a very important part in lessening the suffering of his companions on that dark, damp, wearisome tramp, with its innumerable pitfalls and dangerous precipices. They reached a haven at last, and they gave many sighs of relief and thankfulness that their troubles were over. Angelina appeared to forget that she would have to undergo a similar trial in order to return home, but Paul would not throw cold water on her happiness by mentioning the fact. The leave-taking at the palace was a sad one for the queen and was no less painful to Paul. He became Paul Thornton, the man when he made the farewell to her majesty. She cried like a child, and Paul was visibly affected. He did not try to check the torrent of tears that poured down his cheeks in sympathetic tenderness, as she said goodbye to him, her arms around his neck, her head upon his breast, refusing to let him go. It was a touching scene, and one neither of them ever forgot. He tore himself away from the palace with difficulty and he had given his solemn pledge to visit Appalachia again, and with this promise in her keeping, the queen allowed him to kiss her farewell. By the special request of the queen, they quitted her kingdom under cover of the darkness, 
being careful lest her people should discover the secret entrance, and they arrived at the railway station four days thereafter, where May and Angelina bade Paul a tearful goodbye, and they left for the Atlantic coast. It was a happy reunion at the Thornton residence. The evening Paul arrived in Princeton. He was given a sensational welcome, for his homecoming was one of the long-looked-for events, and Mr. and Mrs. Thornton were sorely grieved over his unaccountable absence. He told them not to expect his return soon, but as the days lengthened into weeks and there was no sign of him, their trouble and worry were multiplied, for be it said the business house of Thornton and Son had been closed by the sheriff, and Paul found his father broken down as well as bankrupt. He had saved his homestead from the wreck, and the little revenue from the post office was their only means of substance. "'It is a sorry homecoming for you, my boy,' said the joyful mother. "'But we are glad to have you, anyway. You are young, and by going to some new country out west, for instance, you can soon make your way.' "'Why leave Princeton, mother?' asked Paul. "'You know, my boy, that the son of a bankrupt has a rough row to hoe in his native town. Besides, Paul, you must remember that you do not bear as good a name.' "'Spare me, mother. Do not recall those unpleasant memories. I will soon be able to clear up that mystery. Is Mrs. Overton home yet?' "'I think not. At least I have not heard of her return. She will be able to provide an alibi for her guest, as she met her in the East and brought her home with her. "'Well, we hope you will convince the people of your innocence, Paul, for that affair has proven a costly one for the Thorntons. Socially as well as financially,' the father spoke up. "'I hope you will not worry another moment, father,' nor you either, mother. I am here to right wrongs and repair broken hearts and pocket books. Going down to the post office the next morning, Paul appeared in a new suit of clothes and walked along with a careless, happy movement, as though at peace with all the world and mankind in general. He smiled and chatted gaily with everyone he met, but not one inquired the cause of his long absence. Entering the well-known business house, a desolated scene greeted him. Empty shelves and barren walls, Cobwebs and dust, nothing but the post office fixtures remained to remind Paul of the once prosperous business. Even this token of ruin did not chase the cheerful expression from his face, and he passed on towards the inner office as though nothing had happened. He was busy writing a letter to his friend Brown Lee, a few moments after his entrance, when he was interrupted by the cashier of the bank. "'How do you do, Mr. Thornton? Glad to see you home again. How is the East?' "'Good morning, Mr. St. Clair,' pleasantly greeting the seemingly affable banker. "'Yes, I am glad to be home again. Had a pleasant trip, I presume?' "'Yes, I have enjoyed my vacation immensely. In fact, extended it longer than I intended. "'Such vacations are too expensive for me, these hard times.' "'Yes,' replied Paul. "'They are costly. I must have spent five hundred the past two months, and I can scarcely realize it.' Five hundred, he repeated, surprised. "'Ah, well.' It all goes, St. Clair. I like money, but I like to spend it better. By the way, Thornton, here's a little matter that needs prompt attention, handing Paul his note for five hundred, a week past due. Where is the collateral which I gave you as security? He asked the banker. Why, you see, stammered he, I did not know when you were coming home, and we took steps towards realizing on them. Am sorry you did that, St. Clair. How far have you gone with it? Oh, we merely gave notice to the parties that we held them. The collateral is in the hands of your attorneys. I see, spoke Paul. Just hold that a day or so, St. Clair, returning the note, and I will look it up. We couldn't hold it longer, Mr. Thornton. It is long past due, and the bank is in need of funds. We are calling in our loans right along now. 
The parties called yesterday and promised to attend to it today. Oh, they responded to your notices. Very well. Perhaps you can make it out of them sooner than I can. If they pay their notes, why, I will not object. Theirs are also long past due. Then you refuse to pay it, and we will have to look to them? No, I said nothing about refusing to pay. I merely asked you to let the matter rest a day or two, and I would attend to it. Well, we cannot extend longer time. It is money we want, and we want it now. If you had stayed at home and attended to business, Thornton, instead of gallivanting over the country and getting mixed up with a lot of questionable characters, you would have saved your credit and could have paid your debts. It was simply the bank's money you were spending. Do you fully realize what you are saying? replied Paul, perfectly calm and undisturbed. I do, sir, and I want to know what you are going to do about this note. Can't I beg a couple of days' time? Paul asked. If you will give us positive evidence that you will meet it, I might do so. Otherwise, we can grant no further extension. Isn't the security ample? I will tell you frankly, Mr. Thornton, your affairs here are in bad shape, and you admit that you are a spendthrift. Admitting all you say, are you not secured against lost? Well, we have decided to close up your account with us. It is a matter of business, strictly business, Thornton. Then it is useless for us to discuss the matter. You say to me, pay up and quit. I will pay you before the bank closes this afternoon. Good morning, sir. And thus, dismissing him, Paul turned to his half-finished letter. The bank closes at three o'clock, he said, making his exit. Paul had scarcely completed his rather lengthy epstyle to Brownlee when an attorney came in and presented him a bundle of accounts. Paul merely glanced at them. He supposed they were correct, due, and had never been paid, although personally he knew nothing of them. He was looked upon as co-responsible with his father, and all accounts for any purpose were charged to Thornton and Son. Hence the accounts were from the butcher, the baker, the shoemaker, the livery man, and others. Paul returned the bundle to the mild-mannered collector with the remark that he was busy with some correspondence, and asked them to call later, in a day or two, promising to pay them. Well, Mr. Thornton, I... I would gladly do so. But... but my instructions are to... to push the claims. Can't you pay them and stop their everlasting gabble? Tell me what they are saying, Horton. I am curious to know. Oh, well, the loafers are ripping you up the back all around town. In fact, you have been the principal talk of the town for weeks. What do they say? A great many things. They say you are a bad man, a deadbeat, spending borrowed money on women and your father and mother starving. Oh, you are catching it from every quarter. That is pleasant news, Horton. Pleasant indeed. After such a delightful vacation, but I guess I will live through it. No doubt of that, said he. I'll tell you, Horton. I have a scheme. Let me have those bills again. I will jot down the amounts. What will be your charges for collecting? Ten percent? About twelve dollars. Very well. Here is your fee. Now then, here is a retaining fee, handing him a gold piece which he pocketed without hesitation. Make it your business, continued Paul, to see to each of these creditors and advise that suit be instituted, so you can attach. Do you understand? I think so, but I do not see your scheme. I will show you later. You proceed under my instructions and let me know the result. Hornton left him, very much puzzled, but follows his instructions to the letter, each one ordering him to proceed to sue. An old man, whom Paul had kept from starving through the winter, hobbled into the post office. Paul owed him a dollar, he told him, and he put up a great tale of woe. Paul listened to him in silence, and when he finished, said, I am sorry for you, Jenkins, 
A dollar would be quite a loss to you. But you seem to think there is danger of losing it. Why? Well, Massa Paul, they all tell me you done gone busted. I see, Jenkins, but you weren't afraid, were you? No, sir. Old Jenkins weren't scared. He knowed Massa Paul would pay him. Paul dismissed him with a brand new silver dollar, and he resumed his correspondence. The attorney came in presently, and Paul told him to notify each creditor to be at the bank at a certain hour. You might whisper a few words to the loafers about something going to happen at the bank at that hour. I begin to tumble, said the attorney, smiling and making his exit. It was exactly half past two o'clock when Paul drove up in front of the modest little banking house on Main Street. There was a big mob of people in and around the building, and it was with difficulty that Paul pushed his way inside. There he is, whispered the crowd as he elbowed his way towards the counter. Going up to the cashier's window, Paul spoke loud enough for all to hear. Are you having a run on your bank, St. Clair? What can I do for you? he said coldly. I desire to pay a little note for five hundred dollars which you hold against me. A deadly silence pervaded the room following this remark. Do you wish to pay it now? asked the cashier in surprise. I want to pay it now, repeated Paul. The collateral is over to Macbeth, the attorney. Oh, well, replied Paul, I guess there are enough witnesses here. I will pay the note, and you can give me a memorandum, agreeing to return the collateral to me by four o'clock. Very well, I will write it out, said he. The cashier was nervous, and in his excitement, he spent fully five minutes in writing the few lines required. By the way, St. Clair, I have a bank draft. I presume it was good? Pushing it through the wicket. One hundred thousand dollars, he exclaimed. Great God, man, where did you get this? Is it genuine? Are you a banker and do not know the signature of your city correspondent? Well, he said, hedging, taking offense, signatures are easily counterfeited nowadays. You have said enough, sir. Please return it to me. Why, Thornton, I will take it for collection. No, give it to me. Do you suppose I was foolish enough to think you could cash a draft for a hundred grand? I don't suppose you could cash one for ten thousand. I will take the draft, please. But I will have to have my money, he stammered, still looking at the draft. Did I not say I would pay that note today? Yes, sir. I usually keep my promise, bringing out a roll of bills. There is one little bill that will cancel my obligation to you. Thank you. Then turning to the mob, who stood in mouth-open astonishment and utterly dumbfounded, Paul said, If any of you gentlemen have any bills against me, go over to Squire Jones's and make oath to their correctness and call at my office and get your money. The mob quickly dispersed, and the young hero of Princeton walked out and jumped into his carriage, leaving a gaping multitude of loafers and hangers-on in silence on the sidewalk. End of chapter 28. Recording by Astronomy.